All right. Um, today, I kind of our history has um, been working along until the end here, and I'm coming to the 20th century, and I'm going to talk about uh, the history of the church in America, sort of how we got to be, well, I mean, what what we have right now, and of course, you know, as you go forward into history, you get some sense it's a little more controversial because uh, it's the situation now that everybody's in, and I guess people are, you know, have their different opinions about uh, where they are and why they're there and all that. But I'll try to give it to you, sort of as history and you know how things happen. And uh, I mean, some of it, I guess, you know, who is justified in doing what? That's uh, all. That's maybe another thing, but but we could talk about it. Just to say that, okay, that the U.S. Uh, the church in, in America began with the Alaskan mission. The, uh, you know, the United States was settled from the, by the French and English and sometimes Spanish coming from Europe um, in the late 1600s and early you know 1700s. But then this is not where the Orthodox Church originated was in these early colonies, but rather from the Russian explorations coming across from Siberia in 1741, the first Orthodox liturgy in North America. And then uh, the first kind of formal mission was sent in 1795 with uh, St. Herman and uh, St. Juvenali. And that was sent to Kodiak, Alaska, and from there, they did missionary work converting the Alaska natives. At this time, Alaska was part of the country of Russia. And so, in some ways, it didn't seem to have very much impact on what was going to be happening in the United States. <coughs> but uh, ultimately, that what will happen is Alaska will be sold to, to America. And so, the Russian church organization in Alaska will become now a church organization within the United States. That happens in 1867. In the intro, I just want to say that the church in Alaska uh, expanded tremendously. There was uh, support of the Russian government and uh, lots of uh, church officials, missions to the native people, translations into the native languages, a gigantic, uh, well, actually at this point, the beginning of of a school system the um, native people um, mixing with the Russians. You had the Creole population that took over much with much of the administration and uh, missionary work by native Alaskans up into other native territories like for the Eskimos and such which were never under Russian jurisdiction directly, politically. But uh, So you had a very substantial church organization developed there. 1867, this was after the the, uh, Civil War, Russia had been allied to the North and thought that the the, uh, United States would ultimately want to have Alaska, so to, in order to forestall conflict with their allies, they offered to sell it. The Union didn't really want to buy it, but they thought they didn't want to insult their allies by refusing, so they agreed to sell it, to buy it. And... uh, then after the sale took place, then gold was discovered in Alaska, and Russian, all the Americans were very happy that they had bought the thing. 
but the poor Russians sold it for uh, very little because actually about the one year's revenue from the seal industry is what they got out of it in payment. But that meant that all these people now who were, you know, the Orthodox natives were living uh, under now American jurisdiction. And this forced the church there to transform itself from just a sort of province of the Russian Empire into a missionary organization. And this was helped by, in 1870, uh, former Bishop uh, Innocent of Alaska, and, and John Vinyaminov, the missionary translator, became the Metropolitan of Moscow, which in the days of the Tsars, from Peter the Great uh, down to the end of the Nicholas II, there were no patriarchs in, in Russia. They only had the Metropolitan. So he was the head of the Russian church, and he formed the uh, Imperial Missionary Society. And in a way, to just to sort of continue to maintain uh, the church that they already had, they sort of were forced to become missionaries because they're now we're dealing with a church outside the empire. Yes. Well, it was a patriarchate uh, years back in the, uh, I remember right now, 1500s. Uh, yeah, I think the 1500s until Peter the Great. Peter the Great abolished the patriarchate. It stayed abolished until the overthrow of Nicholas II. And then in that brief period between the overthrow of Nicholas II and the establishment of the communists, the, communist, the uh, patriarchate was reestablished with Patriarch Tikhon, who was also was well, see, uh, former bishop of the United States, but um, was abolished again by the communists and then reestablished after World War II by, in World War II, during World War II by Stalin, as a way of uh, trying to get support of the church for his war against the Germans. <coughs> anyway, the missionary society. Um, funneled money into Alaska and uh, continued the work of uh, financing lots of clergy. Uh, a lot of clergy were coming over from Russia, going there. there was a, this was the, when the school system kind of reached its peak. You had a, and the school system was a, like a public school system was for, for children, training them in uh, Russian and native languages. And they had a, and a very... Uh, thriving church, you know, if you go to Alaska and you have villages, you see that, you know, one of the things was just, you know, all the books and periodicals and things that were up in these little villages, kind of away from anything, of course, all in Russian, but <coughs> that, um, you know, there's, it was certainly a very uh, vibrant, well-funded church, and then at the same time, they decided that they would extend their missionary work to the lower 48, so the the bishopric, which had been established in Alaska in Sitka, that was kind of the main seat of the uh, of the mission, that was moved to um, San Francisco, where it remained for a while. I, I don't know when it switched to, later to New York, but um, here the, the this became where the main bishop resided. 
and an auxiliary bishop would assign to Sitka. And then as uh, the mission expanded in the lower 48, the, they began adding other auxiliaries down here. It's kind of like the way the uh, Antiochian Archdiocese has these aux auxiliaries and eventually expanded. Yes? Well, yes, it was a Catholic mission, obviously, uh, originally under the Spanish, but at the time of the United States, and of course that's where uh, Peter the Aleut was was killed, uh, somewhere around there, but uh, the <clears throat> time of this time, 1870, was part of the United States, and they had uh, freedom of religion, so the Orthodox bishops wanted to move to, to San Francisco, nobody was really going to stop them. In San Francisco, they this period, at the time when this happened, was when the first parishes were being formed down in the lower 48. <coughs> they, uh, the Civil War was really when they started in the 1860s. There was one in uh, Galveston, another one in New Orleans. San Francisco was one of the early ones. Uh, New York, Chicago uh, got some. So these were... Um, made up of immigrants coming in from Greece and, and Russia, and they were pan-Orthodox churches because there was the only church, you know, it was one church <laughs> in the town, and so all the various nationalities, uh, Serbian, Romanian, you know, whatever, all went to the parish. And in San Francisco, uh, they, they used English as their language because the, the point, since this was a missionary diocese, the point was to missionize the United States. So that, so the emphasis on using English to try to, uh, uh, well, to be successful missionaries. This uh, begins the transformation of a church that's focused essentially on Alaska as a portion of Russia to now the focus on the mission to America. This time period is also the beginning kind of, of large-scale Orthodox immigration into the United States in, in the late 19th century, partly um, due to economic reasons. You had a, a lot of uh, people from Eastern Europe coming over. In the, in the Ottoman Empire, I don't know if you remember from the, from the class of the 19th century, as the great powers were able to enforce forced the Turkish government to grant uh, liberties and human rights to the Christian population, the reaction of the people and the government was to uh, launch massacres and um, well, massive persecutions against the Christian population to try to get rid of them. So one of the places, you know, a lot of them were killed, but the other thing that happened is the ones that weren't killed decided it would be nice to live somewhere else. And so they and moved to the United States. So you had uh, 1880s, 1890s, the beginnings, and then uh, in 1908, the Ottoman uh, government instituted um, universal conscription of Christian people into the army, which also wasn't popular, because, but it was, in some ways it was a step up because before that, Christians were not allowed to bear arms because they were the subject population. But So in a way, it was a kind of improvement of their rights, but it did also cause a lot of people to to leave. So 
the point when the Russian diocese sort of extended its its uh, work to the lower 48 was the period when all of a sudden you had a lot of immigrants moving into the United States. So there were uh, Greeks and Greeks, Arabs, and then you had another group uh, from com people coming from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, the Uniats, and these people were in the Catholic Church because they had been under originally under Polish, uh, or I don't know if you remember, Poland had forced suppressed the old hierarchy and, and uh, Orthodox hierarchy and, and forced people to be under the Pope, but they were allowed to keep their own services. And then this this area was later taken over by the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the partition of Poland that happened after. But the when they got to the United States, a group of them said, "Well, what are we doing in the Catholic Church? We're not Catholics. We didn't want. We're only for, we're forced to be Catholics by the government." Yes. Wasn't that St. Alexis Toth? Yes, St. Alexis Toth is the uh, the leader of this uh, movement. He he was a priest in in Minneapolis of a Uniot parish. When he went to see the bishop, uh, John Ireland, he, who was the Roman Catholic bishop, the other thing was that the Catholics were trying to inf to end ethnic divisions within the Catholic Church, and so they and um, also they were celibate uh, clergy, clean shaven. Uh, you know, all these things that the Uniots were not. So the Uniot priests all arrived with their families. They all had beards. They all wanted to have, you know, the same services they'd always had. And the Catholic bishops wanted everyone to conform to one unified model. So this led the Uniots to uh, get together and decide that they were going to become Orthodox. They contacted the bishop in San Francisco, and you had this massive movement of, of many parishes over into into the Orthodox Church um, of people that are we kind of ethnically call Carpatho Russians, and this uh, yeah, 1890 was when the Alexis Toth sort of began the movement, and let's just see my date straight here. Okay. This is a little bit before these other things, but you had at the same time you had uh, Greek parishes. The first Arab parish in Brooklyn was established 1895, and the first um, Greek parish was 1892, I think. Is that? Did you see that Alex, you see Alex Toth was a uh, Polish guy? He was uh, actually coming from the. He was a Carpatho Russian coming from the uh, northeast corner of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but that area had been Catholicized by the the Poles when during earlier on about well, 1583 or something like that. Yeah, Union of Brest-Litovsk. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's how that's how that 
got transferred right into uh, into Austria-Hungary. So a lot of these people came over to because there was a lot of unemployment in that part of Austria and uh, what's now sort of Czechoslovakia, Poland area. They um, came over to be coal miners, and, and they end up largely in Pennsylvania. It was, it was the center of that, but it's kind of all around that area of the of the east, northeast. So, <clears throat> within a very short time of the establishment of this diocese, you had all these people coming in, establishing all these parishes. They all, uh, though, because in the Orthodox Church, the canonical principle is one bishop per area. I mean, one bishop per area, and then all the people are under that bishop. We don't have, uh, canonically, there's no such thing as ethnic jurisdictions. <laughs> there's only there's only regional jurisdictions, and all the Orthodox people are all, you know, in this in this area are part of the church, and they all combine to have bishops, and they have all have a synod of bishops by area. So when these groups arrived, they all were part of the missionary diocese of the United, of, of the North America with the bishop in San Francisco. So in order to, uh, well, well, let me talk first. This, um, the bishop, the former, you know, people, the, the bishops that used to be up in Sitka in Alaska became the bishops of San Francisco and they an auxiliary, their auxiliary was in Sitka, so that this the archbishop of the was became of the uh, was the San Francisco bishop. And in 1898 is when we have uh, one of the most famous of those is uh, Saint Tikhon, was a Russian bishop, young Russian uh, bishop who was appointed to be the uh, head of the. Orthodox Church in North America, and somewhere in here, yep, there he is. This is a picture of him from that time, when he was the head of the American Church. And uh, later on, you know, you've probably seen a lot of pictures of him <laughs> <laughs> when he's uh, when he became the uh, Patriarch of Moscow, wearing the white uh, thing. And but this was uh, as a young, the white, the white cowl is because of, of it goes with being the primate of the Russian uh, church but because here he was the head of a uh, sort of a province ecclesiastical province uh, he's just he's just a bishop so he's wearing a black cowl he's not the not a metropolitan at this point so he's actually in how, uh, he's actually in San Francisco yes he was the bishop of San Francisco he had an auxiliary up there and then he um, he, his idea was to create auxiliary bishops, ethnic, kind of a ethnic auxiliary bishops, to help him deal with all these ethnic immigrants that were coming in. And the first of those was Saint Raphael. So is uh, his cathedral still there in San Francisco? Do you know? I don't. I, I don't actually. Know. I assume it is, but I actually don't know which building it was. Yeah. Um, was just there last week. Oh, is it? Is that his? Not, 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 I was in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't. I went to the, uh, the cathedral. Do but you don't know when that was. Uh, that that was built fairly recently. Okay. That's where St. John Maximovich is. Right. Yeah, but that wouldn't be a different because that's a. That's pretty recent. Yeah, that's because that's a, a much more recent uh, jurisdiction. So, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Um, there is a St. Peacock's there. It's uh, OCA. Mm -hmm. That might be that, that whatever the oldest cathedral is, but it's not. I don't know that it's I still in existence. Uh, it's just because they didn't move around. Okay. It is. It's, it's called the Green Street Cathedral. The Green Street Cathedral is his church. Always trying to be. Okay. All right. That's the name of the new church. Uh -huh. huh. yeah, that was beautiful. Was good. That's the so, St. Saint Raphael was Bishop of Brooklyn from 1904 to 1915. He was the auxiliary bishop of St. Tikhon for the Syro-Arabic population of, uh, of North America. He also had plans to consecrate two other uh, he had an Albanian person that he wanted to consecrate, and um, I don't know, maybe Greek. I, I think a Greek guy. The, the, to, to where, so his his idea when he uh, was to establish this sort of network of uh, ethnic auxiliaries who would then have diet ethnic dioceses, which uh, is perhaps not wise, but in, I guess under the situation uh, this way the different ethnic groups would have their services and clergy in their own language and, and, and then uh, but they were canonically still all into one united Orthodox Church. Yes? Did they have overlapping dioceses? Yes, actually the, 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 I, the auxiliaries, well because auxiliary bishop is not strictly um, a ruling bishop and the principle in Orthodox canon law is that the ruling bishops are territorial bishops. Whereas an auxiliary bishop is not strictly, is not a ruling bishop, it's, but he's an assistant. In a way, that's how our situation was here in, in the Antioch Archdiocese, um, where Bishop Basil was our bishop, but there was no diocese. So, essentially, our bishop, when it came really down to it, our bishop was Metropolitan Philip, and his assistant for us was Bishop Basil. Now, Bishop Basil is our ruling bishop. And so that's... Um, the situation that the uh, the missionary diocese was in at that time. This uh, Saint during Saint Tegon's time, well, actually, slightly before he got there, the first, um, well, I shouldn't say the first. There was a, a seminary up here. They had a seminary in Sitka um, during Saint Innocent's time. Uh, there was a seminary in San Francisco started in 1872. Here. And then in um, okay, there's a well, I can't find it right now, but the um, in Minneapolis, okay, the um, yeah, 1897 is when the uh, well, Alexis Toth Parish, there, uh, uh, there was a seminary. Uh, founded there. So, all of a sudden you're moving, as these people are being brought in all over the United States, they started creating schools to try to, to train uh, these people, uh, you know, out away from Russia. You know, they didn't try to just hold hold up in Alaska. Yes? Um, are those two seminaries still No. They, n n none of those the seminaries, the first, those first three seminaries, none of them survived. 
Well, except the Minneapolis Seminary uh, was later moved to New Jersey, became the Tenafly New Jersey Seminary, which um, actually ended up getting closed down in the 20s, and then, in a sense, uh, probably you could say that St. Vladimir's, when it was that was opened in the 30s, that was a attempt to resurrect the Tenafly Museum, which I mean, uh, museum yeah. seminary, which was a transfer of the mini old Minneapolis Seminary. But the uh, I don't know, you know, to what extent the, there was a real continuity, I don't know, but because the, there was a gap of like 10 years. Okay, this um, period is also when the the cathedral, the the 19, in the St. Nicholas Cathedral in New York City was built. That uh, of course is now under the Patriarchate of Moscow, but uh, that was uh, built during the time of St. Tikhon. Let's see. Then, um, oh, the other thing is, St. Tikhon, one of the things he did was uh, uh, commission the translation of, of uh, uh, Orthodox services into English by a Anglican woman named Isabella Hapgood. And her service book uh, came out in 1906. And that was, um, that was when I was in seminary, that was still the basic book you had to buy was uh, Hapgood's, Hapgood's Divine Services. And that to get a, she had a whole different collection of different services in there, but that was from his work. Yes? Why did he have an English number? Well, I guess because she was uh, well educated and and uh, was fluent in English and good writer. That's why I guess. Yes. I heard there's something called the Liturgy of Saint Tikhon, which is supposed to be like bought, taken out of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. That's right. Is that right? Yes, that's what we use in our uh, the Antioch Diocese Western Rite uh, parishes use that. As far as I know, that's the main. one, although there are other Western Rite liturgies, but. But he, uh, I'm not really sure what the circumstances were, but he uh, approved essentially a modified version of the Anglican service for use by the Orthodox. I think he also was the one who uh, approved a service for Thanksgiving, so that a lot of a lot of people today will say, "Oh, we shouldn't be celebrating, you know, Thanksgiving is not an Orthodox holiday, and uh, it's during the fast and all this stuff." But uh, he he felt that it was. Uh, important that we adopt the things that were good in our existing culture here and make use of them. It's also an interesting uh, picture of him somewhere. <coughs> he was wearing, a, you know, where he's in a, a kind of like a frock coat and, and a top hat. Because apparently felt that also, you know, he although he did, nor normally you see him in, you know, in his cassock, but that at times, you know, the clergy should dress to sort of fit in, so he he was um, pretty innovative in that, and uh, also during his time, though, is when you start having. Okay, go, let me uh, go ahead answer your question. Did he write this in his service? Um, no, I think he just approved it. I'm not sure that what the. I think it's basically just a kind of Molyebin service uh, that he adapted to to the use for use in America. I don't know, do you, you know, Randall? Uh, well, it certainly contains some very distinctive prayers. But, yeah. Uh, that may be the basic form, but, but uh, yeah. 
Did he in in the the text? Okay. Yeah, and it was approved by the Holy Spirit of Moscow. Okay. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah, he was the bishop of the Russian Church, so you know everything he did kind of had to be approved. Oh, the other thing he did was he established um, the All American Council because this was a time, although in Russia, um, you know, reforms were not allowed. <laughs> there were no reforms allowed until after Nicholas II was overthrown, but uh, but there were a lot of people interested in reform, so America became kind of a uh, testing ground for the reform. So the All-American Council, and they also had, a, you know, like the Metropolitan Council, uh, the, the idea was to include in the decision-making participation by priests and laity and not just uh, see in Russia, what Peter the Great did was he established a, a what they call the Holy Synod. Although it's when you think of the term a Holy Synod, you're thinking well, it's the bishops. You know, they all meet and make a decision. But what Peter the Great meant by that was a group of people he picked out, and they would make all the decisions. And that it wasn't necessarily it included some bishops, but mainly uh, it was headed by the over procurator. So in Russia, you had this little group of people making making all the decisions and so what they wanted was to kind of return to the idea of the conciliarity of the church so you had a the all-american council was that, that you every uh, four years or so you have this meeting of uh, delegates from all the parishes I mean just in a way the anti our um, Antiochian uh, thing we just had where you you sent delegates there the priests went and you had all these people voting on things well, that's not the way it was done in Russia under the czars, you know, because these people didn't get to vote. Even the bishops didn't all get to get together and vote on things. So this was kind of trying to undo some of the of the, the damage of state control. Yes. Are you saying that Tsar Nicholas, in fact, stood in the way of reforms that the bishops wanted to make? Oh yes. I mean, all the czars. I mean, they. That's. I mean, I don't know that he suddenly. It's just that the czars. I mean, ever since Peter the Great, the church had been severely circumscribed and, and restricted by the state. And although I, as time went on, you know, the 19th century, the, the czars were not as hostile to Christianity as uh, Peter the Great and the immediate successors were, uh, or not as necessarily as hostile to orthodoxy. Uh, still, you know, they had established this kind of, uh, well... I would say totalitarian, but kind of a state control. I mean, it was kind of, a, in some ways, analogous to totalitarianism. Um, that, you know, just like when the communist governments broke up, it's very difficult to undo, you know, control once it's established because you're afraid that, well, if we let anything, we let loose anywhere, you know, everything's going to blow up on us. So, Nicholas II was not, uh, he was not hostile to the Orthodox Church. I mean, as far as we could tell, he seemed, you know, actually to sort of sympathetic with the church. But he was not also a great uh, innovator in wanting to, you know, undo centuries of of uh, what the government, how the government had uh, operated. Well, wasn't there a uh, an important council of Russian bishops uh, a yes. few years before the uh, Lenin? Uh, well, it was that 1917. That was the All-Russian Council of 1917 that appointed Patriarch Tikhon as 
patriarch. I thought there was one like ten years before that, five ten years before that. No, not that I know of. I mean, I I may be wrong. There might have been something, but I I know that there was preparation for. I mean, that like that's what that book vanished or vanquished hope. I think it's called. Yeah. Is all about the preparations for the council that were going to take place now that Nicholas was gone, but actually then the communists took over before you know all the reforms were able before they were able to do it. So it's uh, yeah, it's not that he was particularly a tyrant. It's just that. It was a system, you know, that was restrictive. So they just felt like they couldn't. Right, they weren't. Until Nicholas was gone. Right. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And he was saint of the church. Yeah. Well, because people are saints for different reasons. I mean, you you exemplify something, some aspect of piety. It doesn't mean you're uh, perfect in everything you do. And and I mean, and it wasn't something Nicholas himself was. As I said, they, they weren't doing this. It wasn't because Nicholas decided he was going to persecute the church, but just because the system that was put in place by Peter was still in place. Let's um, going here. Um, all right, now this was all uh, kind of going along very nicely. Uh, the church in America was growing, but. Um, Something happened. The Russian Revolution that we're talking about, 1917, during World War One, overthrew first the Tsar, and initially that caused a All-Russian Council, which some of the representatives of our church went there and helped elect Tikhon uh, to be the Patriarch of uh, of Russia. But very quickly, the Communists took over, and uh, this, well, I'll say for first off, a kind of uh, basic thing: all the funding was cut off. So the church, and the American church, the uh, all the salaries were paid from Russia initially, and the funding to build the buildings, a lot of it came from Russia. So the you had this very large, you know, thriving church administration. All of a sudden, now no income coming in, and that created a a disturbance. You also had uh, some difficulties. Initially, Patriarch Tikhon was, uh, he was arrested, but you could kind of, arrested, unarrested, but it didn't, uh, it didn't become impossible for a few years. They still were able to communicate with him up into the 20s. The uh, Russian government, though, started to meddle in church affairs, as we'll see in a few years. This, um, into our church affairs and and Russian church affairs and and um, I'll talk about that um, in a minute. But this is kind of a break because at this point you had a, a, a kind of unified church that everybody agreed to that was well funded and thriving. With the, with the revolution, the funds go away, and then all of a sudden you ha- start having attacks on the church from various sectors. The first uh, major, the major attack, you would have to say, was from the communists. Partly, what they did was they sponsored a group called the Living Church, which was a group of of priests that, in some ways, wanted, you know, they were interested in reforms. Um, Some of the reforms were good, but they were 
very uh, supportive of the communist movement. And as a result, in Russia today, you know, a lot of those good reforms that were being contemplated before the revolution are now totally discredited because the living church adopted them. One was the um, translation of the services from Slavonic into Russian. Well, now that's like, you can't, can't get that anywhere because, well, that's what the communists wanted. So we don't, we're not going to do that. And um, one of their things also was, they, they maybe not so uh, great, but uh, was to have uh, married bishops. But the living church was intended as a way of trying to break up uh, the loyalty of the Russian people for the, uh, the Russian church as a whole, trying to divide it, and uh, especially to separate people perhaps from the patriarch. The living church... Uh, Hell, was, he's, he's there. Well, he's no, there in Russia. Oh, he's, okay. he's back in. He's in Russia. Okay, he's gone back. Well, right. He was. He was bishop in America. He actually went back to Russia before the revolution, and then while he was there, he was elected patriarch uh, by some of our bishops going over there and uh, other representatives, as well as everybody else. And then. So he's here while he's there. Uh, bishop at first Bishop Alexander, and then uh, uh, Bishop Platon. Was actually during the key points we're going to talk about. Bishop uh, Platon is the main, uh, the main person. Platon. Okay. Well, Raphael. He, he died in 1915, and he was replaced by another uh, Arab bishop as the uh, auxiliary uh, bishop. Arfish, Arf, Arfish, I guess his name. I can't remember exactly how it's pronounced. They didn't pick any of those. They just, you know. No, no. They, um, well, Platon was sent over, and then he was a later. Well, then Alexander was elected by an All-American Council, and then Platon was elected by an All-American Council. In both cases, uh, confirmed by the Patriarch in Russia. The, so it was. It's, it's interesting. They also wanted to move towards local election. But local election, you know, still we were under the patriarch at that time. The Living Church um, held a council in which they deposed the patriarch and they deposed uh, Platon in 1923 for uh, being uh, counter-revolutionaries uh, in opposition to the Soviet power. Yes. Was this council in Russia? Yes, in Russia. And they uh, declared, they sent a uh, John, John Kedrovsky to be the, uh, the, the replacement bishop for America. Now, at this point, um, Platon called an All-American Council in Detroit, 1924, <coughs> to you know, respond to this. And the council he met without him, and under... Uh, president of what, who would later be Metropolitan uh, Leonti was a priest at that time and the council decided to uh, disregard that the living church was not uh, authentic and that they uh, considered that because of the communist interference that they would temporarily break relations with Russia and form and just exist keep Platon as, as bishop and uh, as the head bishop, actually at this point he was metropolitan. Was the, the, it was because this was a 
this is at this point the missionary diocese had become already been changed into a metropolia, and often that's this. So people talk about this as that the metropolia as being the original American church, and that they would that they would exist independently of uh, of, of of Russia. Is that 1924? 1924. Now. What happened was the living church then was go. The Russians were trying to. There were 116 church properties in America at that time, 116 parishes, and the Soviet government was trying to get control of all those properties through the living church. And the courts, in the case of St. Nicholas Cathedral, ruled for the living church and the Soviet government. And so the Metropolia lost its cathedral in New York. Which is and which to this day is is the um, is the, owned by the Patriarchate of Moscow. Uh, is a, their um, now it's now it's their uh, what we call Podvoria or um, what do you call it? Embass- embassy church sort of. But the um, but that was our cathedral and that and and there was the fear that all 116 churches were going to be taken over by the Soviet government. So at that point. Uh, People panicked, and the Metropolitan decided that all church property would just be that the deeded out to the local parishes. That the that the local to his church would that the the church administration would own nothing. And so they this was kind of the uh, this dispersal of the property, um, basically to try to protect it. Now, during this time. We had other, um, well, I would say, so the Living Church ultimately didn't succeed in taking over everything, but and eventually was kind of discredited and went away. But the Moscow Patriarchate continually tried to grab land and, and later kind of established, actually during uh, a period after World War II, established quite a presence for itself in America uh, of, mas- of patriarchal parishes, trying to basically trying to get as many of the old parishes as they could to come over under the patriarchate. That they never got real big, but that was it's always with a kind of a tension because they were trying to snipe parishes. Now we had other things happening. One was that um, some of the uh, churches back in the old country, when they realized that the Russian church was in trouble decided that they wanted to get control of their the parishes of their ethnic groups in America. And um, uh, Miletius Medixakis in uh, 1921, at that time was Bishop of Athens, came over to New York and started talking to the Greek, par- Greek parishes and saying, well, what are you doing here under these Russians? You, you should be with me, and convinced a group of them to join up with him. Then he was later made um, Patriarch of Constantinople, so he transferred their jurisdiction from Athens to Constantinople, and that's where they are to this day. For a while, though, so he managed, so basically he kind of pushed um, sort of ethnic principles, I mean, actually, which is ironically the heresy of philatism that they condemned in the 19th century against the Bulgarians. Um, They followed the same principle, to say that, well, you shouldn't be, you know, Greeks should be with Greeks, not with, so that the uh, the canonical principle of territorial church became uh, violated in America by 
home bishops who wanted to preserve, to establish church in in the in America on the basis of ethnic lines, that that the Greeks should remain under the under the jurisdiction of Greeks, not be part of a American church. Yes. I, I didn't know this at all. I, I I didn't realize it actually started sort of on the right principles. Yes. And then it got going in the wrong direction. Yes, right. Well, it was because of the weakness. Right now, it's, we're in a period of trying to recover what we had uh, up to the world period of World War One. Huh. So nineteen, uh, uh, he was uh, nineteen twenty-one. So Miletius is when he did that. And of course, initially though, it didn't work out so well because there was a war. Well, no, there were these different political parties in Greece. And Miletius was connected with one group, I guess a sort of Republican group, and then there, the king got the upper hand, and so ha so a lot of the parishes in America were under the, wanted to be with the king, so there were actually two Greek uh, jurisdictions that uh, were here for a while, and I think they eventually in the 30s got back together. The, uh, the Arabs kind of had a similar problem. There was this, this diocese of St. Raphael, but the Patriarch of Antioch was trying to, sending somebody over, trying to get the parishes to leave and come under him. He actually managed to get a few. And the um, Platon uh, was working with that, he had, at that time, the Aftimios, um, I'm sorry, I, I said the wrong name before. Aftimios was the bishop who was the succeeded Raphael. And he helped Aftimios uh, to set up a kind of independent uh, church that would be so he was, Aftimus was made an archbishop, and he was given two auxiliary bishops, but it was sort of so a kind of Arab church that would be under the main uh, metropolia still. So that uh, lasted till, um, I think, the 1930s. That was done, let's see, in the 1920s. So you had the two groups. You had you had Aftimius's, the old the old uh, Saint Raphael diocese, and then you had the patriarchal diocese, which was oddly supported by the uh, Episcopalians. It was uh, Anthony Bashir was the bishop in charge of the patriarchal group, and he was supported by by the Episcopal Church, and then the uh, and the patriarch in Antioch, and then the uh, Aftimius had the. The, the old the old diocese from the from the metropolia. In the end, uh, though, the in the 1930s, the uh, Aftimius's church agreed to recognize the authority of the patriarch of Antioch to put themselves under the patriarch, but uh, but they kept a separate administration, and that lasted up until I think 1975. Yeah, so. so so our anti current Antiochian Archdiocese is the union of those two groups since 1975. So it's a pretty recent uh, in its current form. And I guess that's also why they're also very concerned about unity in the Antiochian Archdiocese. Uh, I guess because they were these, these two groups. So the union of St. Raphael's Diocese, Metropolitan Diocese, with the patriarchal diocese, but now, well, since the 30s, they they left uh, in 37. I think the 
Raphael's diocese went transferred their allegiance from the Metropolia over to the Patriarchate as well. So essentially two dioceses of the Patriarchate now become one, diocese, one archdiocese. So that's the Antiochian archdiocese. Yes? Um, well, that was, they were, they, for some reason the Episcopal Church was supporting Anthony Bashir to do missionary work among the Arabs. So it was odd because, of course, there was already a diocese and he was coming in establishing a sort of separate diocese. I don't know why they were supporting him to do that, but maybe out of kind of uh, ecumenical missionary in kind of endeavor. I'm not sure whether they whether they were trying to create problems or just trying to be helpful. But that's all out of this now. I mean, that's Well, that's no, that's what that's well they they, they weren't actually. Anthony Bashir was not an Episcopal bishop. He was a bishop under the Patriarchate of Antioch, but he was being financed by the Episcopalian Church to to do his missionary work in America. Yes? So before, uh, was it 1924, mm-hmm. uh, the relationship between the Patriarchate, the Patriarch of Antioch and, and the Patriarch of Constantinople and all those, what were their relationships to the church in the United States? Well, Did they have I mean, any I, official role no, in no, no, they didn't. At least, well, I mean, uh, Miletius came in 1921, but let's be before Miletius. No, there was no. The church in America was all uh, a single metropolia under the Bishop of San Francisco, and it was a portion. It was a part of the Patriarchate of Moscow. Mm-hmm. But because the war, two things: the cutting off of the funds. I'm sure that helped get a lot of people uh, dissatisfied. But the other thing was that since there was now kind of tension, you know, with the with the communist government in Russia, it gave an opportunity that suddenly the patriarch said, "Well, why am I, you know, leaving my Greeks over there, you know, with these guys when you know the patriarch of Moscow is not going to be able to do anything? Why don't I go and just get them to come with me?" Because they, they, there was as long as under the patriarch of Moscow, clearly, no one would interfere, but. But when that when that jurisdiction wasn't clear, then they thought, well, why should the why should the metropolia continue right. having its own jurisdiction? We'll just, uh, we'll just set up we'll come in and set up our our jurisdiction there, and so you created a whole network of because this went on with the Bulgarians, the Romanians, the Albanians, um, and and Serbia. Uh, so the whole uh, church in America, which had been a single church before the war, by the well, because with the Arabs it took a little longer, but essentially by the late 20s, uh, there were now all the all the separate a multitude of jurisdictions, all really tied back. You still had the metropolia, but you had, and even in the metropolia among the Russians, you had the um, the Moscow Patriarchate trying to take those parishes, and then you had also. Um, oh, well, I'll get that. Okay, go ahead. in the sense that they could say that uh, you know since now the patriarch of Moscow was not 
clearly in charge, you know, why should the metropolitan, they didn't, maybe they didn't feel that the metropolitan of San Francisco should have uh, authority. The problem is canonically it's, it's improper. Um, I mean, they, I think they perhaps did it out of a desire to perhaps to help their own people that were over in the United States. I think also largely to try to keep control of their own people. I mean, that's certainly how it's developed with, let's say, the Patriarch of, of, of uh, Constantinople. Obviously, the Greek archdiocese is his major source of funding, so there's a, there's a kind of motive. But uh, whether, I mean, everybody was doing it just kind of as vultures or whether they were thinking that uh, they could be more helpful to their people if they, you know, jumped in themselves instead of just leaving leaving them as a portion of a larger American church that's possible. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm sure they had uh, motives that they thought were, you know, were valid. It's just that canonically it, it made a mess of things. I understand that. Yeah. My... I'm just wondering if, on a practical level, mm-hmm. uh, once the Metropolitan in America was cut off from Russia, right. no longer got any funding, any support, any guidance, nothing yeah. from Russia, uh, number one, I would think their own canonical situation would be quite irregular. Well, uh, I mean it's, irreg- it's irregular, but not, but not unheard of. I mean, it's irregular in the sense that... Uh, well, I mean, it says what happened to the, to Russia in the, after the fall of Constantinople. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, churches that are under other, you know, missionary areas that become cut off tend to be just become independent. I mean, that's... Uh, we're trying that's, to make the best of a bad situation, clearly. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> my question is, I just wonder if they were in any position, the Russian metropolia, mm-hmm. did they have the manpower, the money, the know-how... Mm-hmm. to do any practical ministry among these groups of, of immigrants from non-Russian com- countries? Well, in one way, yes, because they'd already been, I mean, they'd already been doing all this before this happened. I mean, these, these jurisdictions, were, I mean, the, uh, par- all these ethnic parishes were already there. They already were had the uh, idea of setting up the ethnic diocese. The and in other ways, I suppose, you, you know, with the financial problems, um, I'm sure there were shortages, and it's possible that they, you know, there was some pressure among uh, ethnic groups to say, well, we could, you know, we could do a lot better if we just go back to our own patriarch back in the home country and let him take care of sending us priests and paying their salaries and not have to worry about, you know, raising money for this guy here in, in America that... Uh, isn't one of our people, maybe, but I, I don't know if there was some that possibly had something to do with it. You know, I can just imagine that if if the priest salaries and the church buildings had all been provided by the czar, mm-hmm. the American parishes would have had no experience of stewardship, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, or of any kind of you know taking care of their own affairs. Right, and that was a problem. Actually, that's what. Uh, Bishop Alexander, that's why he was a bishop a short time. <laughs> he had he got kind of swamped by the finances and uh Bishop Platon, Metropolitan Platon was brought back in uh, because uh he was felt that he could he actually was the one who kind of reorganized the finances and got the metropolitan situation stabilized. I just uh, okay, uh, a few more things I wanted to talk about, but go ahead uh Will Cork. Yes, well that's one of them. 
I, first, I don't know if you're familiar with the Carpatho-Russian Archdiocese. That was a group of the former Uniats who, at this point, one of the bishops decided to break away and create his own diocese of Carpatho-Russians, and that's in Pennsylvania today. Uh, they're now under the ecumenical patriarchate, who's kind of picked up a lot of these little loose jurisdictions. Rokar is, this is another challenge that came with the with the uh, World War One, you had uh, bishops that were that fled their diocese and ended up in Constantinople. When they were in Constantinople, they asked the Patriarch of Constantinople if they could hold services for the Russian uh, refugees there. He said fine. You could, you know, so under his jurisdiction, they were able to hold services. What happened was that once they were doing that, they started doing other things, and. Uh, Kind of overstepping the bounds uh, that uh, the patriarch had laid out, because I mean they were not they were not active, they were no longer uh, bishops in their diocese. One of the things you can't do in, in Orthodox churches you can't even though you're a bishop you can't go to someone else's diocese and just start ordaining people. You you anything you do I mean you can't even go there and hold a liturgy without their permission. So they. Um, the bishop, the bishop of the bishop that you're, if you're in someone else, if you go from your diocese over the line to another diocese, you can't just say, okay, well, I'm going to have a liturgy today at such such church. So, 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 yep. so is that one of the tests of uh, who is and who ain't Orthodox? Well, in a sense of that's a, that's a, of acting in kind of canonical order is that you need to be having permission. So they had permission to serve in his in in the in Constantinople. But they started doing more than that, and one of the things they did was they they kind of set themselves up, and they created what they they called a synod, um, a synod of of refugee non-sitting and therefore non-sitting uh, bishops, and they they declared themselves to be the replacement of the Patriarchate of Moscow and to want to establish authority over the Russian churches in the rest of the world. Uh, Patriarch, well, the two things. So the Patriarch of Constantinople said, well, you're acting out of bounds. I, I revoke all authority for you to serve services, which they just ignored. Uh, Patriarch Tikhon wrote to them and said, uh, you have no authority to create any kind of uh, synod of bishops. You're, there are Russian bishops already established because there was the Russian Metropolitan in Western Europe, there's Russian Metropolitan in America. Those are, the, those are the sitting bishops. They have authority. You have to be under them, and whatever local bishops you're under. Well, they just ignored that, and they started trying to writing to the United States and telling. Well, I guess they to Europe as well, saying, "Well, they are now the supreme authority. Uh, you are now subject to us." And the Church in America and Western Europe uh, said, "No, you know, you're not. You're not standing. You're not uh, bishops in your diocese. You're. You have no authority." And we are the established church here, so we're not, we're under, at that time they were still under Tikhon, we're under Patriarch Tikhon, we're not under you. <clears throat> the uh, Senate just ignored that, kept trying to assume some kind of control in the rest of the world, but mostly that just kind of sat for a while because they were, they kind of settled in Yugoslavia ultimately and didn't really bother people until 1946 when. World War II ended, and these people decided to uh, time to leave Yugoslavia because it was taken over by communists. Well, they're not under anybody. 
Right. They were just, they had all, they were bishops that were all acting uncanonically to have services without any authority. They wouldn't, they, and they, so they came to the United States and said, well, we're the, we're the ruling bishops of the Russian church. You need to be, you bishops in the sub, in, are, need to be subject to us. And of course, this had already, they'd already said, no, we're not subject to you. You're, you're acting improperly. So when, the, when they came over to America, they just set up operations in New York uh, and basically ignored the church that was here, and except to try to get them to go under them. But the church there said, no, we're not under you and you're, you're not. So at the same time that the Russian church had the Moscow people coming in and trying to set up patriarchal churches, the, the, the uh, synod basically was coming in, setting up their operations here too. So that's where our Rokor is coming from. Now, I want to just, I know it's late, but um, we have uh, hours first, so let me say a few more words. That in 1923, same wonderful Miletius Maksakis, who caused so much good things in America with uh, pulling the Greeks out of the metropolia, went home to Greece and decided to change to the new calendar. This was accepted by all the bishops in Greece, but it was not necessarily accepted by all the people. Uh, at that time, it was the Greek churches that adopted the new calendar, essentially. Not Russia is still on the old calendar, for example. But there eventually came a, a movement, and I, I'm not, but somehow in 1935, I think, is when the you know, old calendar bishoprics were established. That's when the old calendar movement got started. And I think, if I, I don't know, but I think there was an inheritance of a very wealthy person who wanted to support an old calendar that got this whole thing going. That he, um, but, the, but the old calendar split up into a zillion factions, uh, dividing kind of into what we somehow moderate. Now, old calendars are not just churches on old calendar because, I mean, the OCA was on the old calendar. So recently part of the OCA is still on the old calendar. Russians are on the old calendar, but, but they have both old and new calendar in the OCA. But that doesn't, Old calendar is, is where you're saying that it's a doctrine that you must be on the old calendar, and if you're not on the old calendar, you're in error. Now, the division between moderate old calendarists and radical old calendarists is that the moderate old calendars say, well, you're in error if you go to the new calendar, but you're still Orthodox Christians. And that's was uh, Rokor kind of identified itself. Initially, that had nothing to do with Rokor or why they got themselves in trouble in America over uh, accepting Bishop Pantelaimon after he'd been, I mean, not, uh, Father Pantelaimon of Transfiguration Monastery in Boston after he'd been thrown out of the Greek Archdiocese. But the there was also in the Greek Arch, uh, Bishop Athenagoras when he became Patriarch. Uh, that was when he removed the anathemas and there was this ecumenical movement. So there are a lot of things going on in the 60s that led Rokor to, I mean, partly the when they accepted Pentelaman, they were the Greek archdiocese broke communion with them, but then they said, "Oh well, but by the way, you're ecumenical. By the way, you're on the new calendar, so we can't be in communion with you either." And um, that, but they, but they did hold the position. Relcor held the position that people in on the new calendar were Orthodox Christians, and they didn't. Uh, they just thought, "Well, they're wrong about these different things." In Greece, you had the development of some who said that there is no grace outside of the old calendar, and the, the most uh, extreme of these people were known as the Matthewites. This ideology 
also came into the United States and entered into part of Rocor. Most notably, the last uh, metropolitan of, of the Rocor was, was Vitali, pretty much fully endorsed Matthewite theology, at least in his speeches. I don't know whether he doesn't know, it's not clear that he personally consistently believed it, but he talked like that anyway, that uh, the people he called uh, people who lived in the Moscow Patriarch as, uh, you know, totally without grace, and they were there's all, there's all kinds of very florid quotes about them. Matthew, I be named after a bishop, Matthew, who died in 1950 in oh. Greece. And um, there's a, the, the, uh, some of the people in, in Austin are somewhat connected with something like that, although I think it's actually even a little sect that's on its own too now. But they were people from the regular churches here that left, went under the Rokor, thought the Rokor were too ecumenical and went off eventually into smaller and smaller uh, radical sects. Um, well, they just are tiny, little tiny groups that don't, yeah. you know, that yeah. don't believe that anybody else is uh, orthodox. Yeah. Is, is it, is it uh, Pecan that gets on to the old believers? You mean of what, of trying to bring them back into the church? No, uh, that, that caused the uh, schism between who, 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 who was the one that precipitated the old believers uh, that caused oh in the 1600s that oh, was way back then. yeah that was oh, uh, okay. Bishop Nikon oh Nikon with an N yeah right, okay. yeah. Camera, right. right yes so where, does, where did the OCA fit into that is this just a continuation okay. of the original the OCA is the Metropolia and what happened in 1970 was that they Essentially, uh, maybe detente. You know, they they made a, a deal with the Moscow Patriarch that, um, you know, basically we'll be friends with you if you, you know, formally recognize us. So the Moscow Patriarch said, okay, you know, you're up, they're all on their own anyway. We'll just we'll say you're right, you're the legitimate continuation of the Metropolia. We recognize you as autocephalous, self-governing, and the continuation of this original church, which, by the way, was the canonical is the continuation of the original canonical church by area. At the, at the time, the OCA was hoping to bring everybody along with them, but uh, and some of them did. Some, I mean, there's a Bulgarian diocese, the Romanians, there's Albanians in the OCA, a Serbian parish, at least one parish, uh, but the uh, Antiochian and Greek didn't end up going along because of opposition from their patriarchs. Uh, so the, the situation now, so the OCA is the Metropolia. Um, there's, they, a, there's a calendar. Y, y, well, they oh. gradually, uh, yeah, they've moved to new calendar mostly. They still have old calendar parishes. I mean, the, our Diocese of Alaska is old calendar. So it's not, because it doesn't, in, except unless you're an old calendarist, it doesn't really matter which calendar you're on. So, you still, you still go to the chapel. Right, the so they... Uh, I mean, and, and the Moscow Patriarchate is, is an old calendar, but, um, you know, they are in communion with all the new calendar churches as well. So the problem, and old, being an old calendarist is saying that the change, I mean, to me, old calendarism is a very similar um, doctrinally to old believerism that changes in liturgical, liturgical changes mean that you no longer have grace. Where, and then, of course, the Matthewites also enter in an element of Donatism, uh, and saying that's kind of the, and especially, well, you see that in some of the statements by Vitali, and somewhere, you know, I don't, 
the, of course, Vitali, fortunately, was not uh, ex his ideas were not accepted by the whole Rokor, and then what happened is late, recently Rokor split between those who were, let's say, uh, followers of Vitali versus uh, the overall people who were following the rest of the bishops. Donatism is the belief that individual sh failings of a leader can dis, um, dis disrupt the grace of God to the whole church. So, in other words, uh, and it's Donatist type thinking that leads to these grad the sects to getting smaller and smaller is because, well, if you're in communion with that guy over there who's doing this thing wrong, well, then you're no good. So, unless you renounce him, you know, I can't be in communion with you. So essentially, as long as you keep picking out things that are wrong, then everybody in communion with that wrong guy, you know. So pretty soon what happens, I mean, to a lot of people is they end up, and I was looking at a website of um, churches in America that are orthodox, you know, that call themselves orthodox, and there's this enormous list, and they, a lot of them are essentially one person or one parish, um, you know, who's convinced that everybody else is wrong, and he's the only one left. And so, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's it's a kind of uh, well, it's it's defining the church as only you know that you can only be really be in the church if you're not in communion with you know anybody else who's making any error whatsoever. And so therefore, in the, by that definition, you know that you're always going to end up being the only person still in the church because because there's always going to be something wrong with anybody else that you come against that you don't agree with them about. Yes. Well, that's what uh, Ligonier was about uh, in, uh, in 1994. Was the Ligonier Conference of the and well, in 1960 was the establishment of SCOBA, Standing Conference of Orthodox uh, Bishops uh, of America, which was so that was the first step to try to say, okay, we all need to work together. I mean, so we've all broken up into all these different groups. Now let's say, wait a minute, we're still all one church in America. Of course, each, the problem at Ligonier was then the Patriarch of Constantinople immediately denounced it because this was a it, Patriarch of Constantinople. You know, as soon as as soon as the bishops all got together and said, "Well, we'd like to have one American church someday," oh, well, that you know, we you denounced it. That's that's no good. So uh, there's no plan really in Constantinople to, to eventually merge all this stuff. No, there. I mean, they, the so problem is that there's a, a vested interest in keeping that. For a thousand years from now, we're still going to have you know. The um, I mean, I think, you know, from their point of view, perhaps that would be the ideal, but uh, I think the reality is that that won't happen. I mean, the, the, Philip, Metropolitan Philip always spoke about the, wanting to join the OCA, be part of a one United Orthodox Church. The Patriarch always said no, 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 no. Finally, he got autonomy, and at the, at the convention, you know, he's saying, well, this is just the first step, we're on our way. Uh, but then you read the Patriarchal letter, you know, and basically, it's all with you are part of the Patriarch of Eight of Antioch forever and ever, and you know, no way you will ever not be part of it. And so the Patriarch is, you know, giving little, only little, as much as he's forced to, but is affirming that this, you know, basically that when he sent somebody over here in the twenties to grab up part of this, he's keeping it. You know, he's not giving it up, no way ever. But the testimony of, of all this in America doesn't seem good. No, it's not. I mean, it's really caused... Well, ecumenical means imperial, so he was the patriarch of the imperial capital. Yeah. 
it doesn't mean that he's broad mind, more broad-minded than other <laughs> patriarchs. <laughs> you know, he's just, he just you know, perhaps, but it doesn't. It just means he's, you know, that's where he lives. So, uh, isn't there sort of a political reality to all this stuff that transcends the church, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, or anathema for some people? That is the practical uh, situation that we live in in this country. That 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 over time, over time, mm-hmm. and it may be a long time. That 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 there is there is some likelihood that it will gravitate to one larger. It may still be fractious, but it'll it'll grow to one larger, just 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 to be able to survive in a in a non-orthodox world. That's what we hope. I mean, we're they're working towards that. I mean, that's why the organizations like Orthodox People Together, right. um, I don't know, to maybe some extent, Orthodox Christian Lady. I mean, there's. I'm not sure if that was aiming at pan-Orthodoxy, but you know, you have. Uh, I mean, and the Antiochian Archdiocese has supported St. Vladimir's Seminary, and um, uh, by the way, those St. Vladimir and St. Tikhon's were found in the 30s, I mean, it's, and it supports, supports Holy Cross. It doesn't have its own seminary, you know, so it's trying to work with, and, and we have now the Orthodox uh, Mission Board that does, you know, IOCC, so we're creating pan-Orthodox institutions right. So that essentially everything's in place, and we're trying to get people in the Orthodox Church to think about the whole church, not just about their archdiocese. Or you know, mm-hmm. um, so it's a mental process. But in the end, I mean, of course, the patriarchs are fighting against it. But I think but ultimately it'll happen, whether they want it or not. I, I think. I mean, uh, we're a continent away. Yeah. Least, you know? And canonically, I mean, see, canonically, it's what the, they, the things they set up are not canonical, and. Eventually, that you know, that and practicality will hopefully carry it through. Uh, I know it's awfully late. I got. I gotta let you go. I'll just say there's a bunch of books on the history of North Extra America. <laughs> if, you're, if you're interested in them, you can look at them. But uh, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Yes. Uh, um, I know you're familiar with the uh, with the old believers, and they're always sort of intriguing because they're so exotic, mm-hmm. you know, for no other reason. Right. I don't know what they believe or what they don't believe or any agreement on the topic. Do you talk to you know enough to talk about this about two minutes or so? Sure. They are, um, well, I mean, Patriarch Nikon, you know, kind of pulled a fast one in uh, basically substituting Greek services for Russian services in the 1600s. That got them all mad, and they said, you know, no, but then... They believe that, I mean, they were in the right, actually, but then they believed that that meant that the grace of, of uh, God had been withdrawn from the world. And so the strict old believers actually just felt that all sacraments were gone. The priesthood was gone. Their churches end at the Iconostas. There's no altar. Uh, there's a kind of compromise groups. I mean, there was actually some group there was no marriage anymore because this was this is the end. But the... Some have got they they feel if you can get a priest to come over from the regular church, well then the grace is back, you know, so you can keep having services, even though they just have no bishops. But uh, what we've tried to do is to kind of get them back into the Orthodox Church, and there are uh, the in Roquer, for example, the Erie Parish it was a, it was a synod parish that's now there's a num- so there's a number of uh, I think over the years in in Russia too there was an attempt to to bring the, the the old believers back into the church. So I guess the old believers that were willing to say, okay, we had a disagreement and uh, that the church now basically says, okay, we, we were wrong to try to push all these 
reforms on you. But that's but then they'd have to say, well, but we were wrong to sort of say, well, that that means that the grace of God is gone, but the grace of God is still there, and and they're willing, the Russian church is willing to let them use their own service books. So, but there's still, uh, you know, there's still old believer communities that exist on their own and don't want anything to do with the rest of the world. Yeah, oh, I hope so. <laughs> that's, Maybe that's I, what we pray for. Yes, that's what we pray for the bishops uh, because that's a lot depends on their on their decisions. Well, I I really tell you to get out of here because otherwise uh, <laughs> other agents going to be saying why am I keeping uh, all away from vespers? Uh, yeah, we have a little uh, the book story and. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I, there's just major gaps in my understanding of. Thank <laughs> you.